Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of the Middle Grade Ninja Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and I've got good news and I've got some bad news. Uh, the good news is I've got two new books available, uh, the first of which is Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. I wrote the first draft of Rob's story when I was 11 years old and in the fifth grade. That version is included with the new edition, complete with full illustrations by 11-year-old me. Um, I have been rethinking and rewriting that story ever since through many, many different variations. At one point, it was a template for the Banneker Bones trilogy. Uh, it has been through a lot of changes, but I'm most excited about this version that's available to you now. Uh, Rob is an adventure-seeking worm. He burrows to the surface with his bunch on a rainy spring morning just to be swooped up by a passing robin. Uh, she carries him way up into the sky, but not to worry, he wriggles free only to land on the roof of a human house. How's he going to get down? And if he does, he's surrounded by nasty yellow jackets, a sizzling hot driveway, colonies of warring ants, a giant spider. There's a whole pond full of worm-hungry koi. When you're a worm, uh, almost everything in your average human backyard is out to eat you. So Rob's got his work cut out for him. Uh, it's an exciting, action-packed story that I also think is a little bit funny. Uh, I hope that you'll check that out. Uh, my other novel is Goodbye to Grandma, and that one is about sixth grader Haley Smith, uh, who comes of age by coming to terms with the death of her grandmother. Uh, it is my most personal story. When I was in the sixth grade, my grandmother died, and I was unable to cry at her funeral. It took me a very long time to process my grief. And since I'm publishing this book now, some would say I'm still processing it. Um, I hope that you'll check out both of those books. I hope you'll enjoy them. I hope that you'll feel compelled to write a review, help me promote them in any way that you can. That would mean the world to me. Uh, so that's the good news. Two new books available for you right now. Um, the less good news uh, is that I have, my personal circumstances have changed in such a way that I am not going to be able to continue hosting the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Uh, it has been one of the great thrills of my life to have chatted with so many amazing guests. I can't believe the, the people I've had the, the opportunity to sit down and talk with. I have learned so much about writing, publishing, life, and I hope you've learned some things as well. Um, I hope the show has been helpful to you, esteemed audience. I, I couldn't have done it without you, and I so appreciate your support uh, through the years as we've done this. Um, I don't know if or when I'll be able to come back to the show. It's my hope that someday that I will. Um, but in the meantime, I want to offer my most sincere thank you to you and to everyone who has been a part of this show and, and just the incredible experience it's been. We're going to go up to episode 212, and then after that, there will not be any additional episodes for at least a while. But stay subscribed to the feed. Um, hopefully at some point I'll, I'll be able to come back to you, if not to host a regular podcast. I'll at least have some updates for you about some other things I may be working on. Also keep an eye on middlegradeninja.com. Uh, every week I end the show with God willing I'm alive. I'll see you next week. But today I'll just say God willing I'm alive. I hope to see you soon. Uh, today couldn't be more thrilled. I have the uh, good fortune, the privilege to be talking with Tamar Brzezinski. Uh, Tamar, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thanks so much for, for making the time. Uh, esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me badly summarizing their biography or their books. Uh, how painful that would be for you. Uh, so if you would, give uh, esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. 
Sure. I was lucky enough to um, find my way into literary agenting, you know, at a young age. I interned at an agency um, in college, and uh, it's because my mom um, was good friends with Gail Carson Levine from uh, the time they were little kids. And Gail was at our house one time and was like, you should be an agent. And so <laughs> she set me on my path. Um, and I'm forever grateful to her. Um, and so I interned during college and then right out of college, I got a job at uh, Sanford Greenberger Associates. And I was working there at the time when, uh, in, for an agent who did both translation rights and domestic rights. Um, and that was at the time when Dan Brown was the client there and was just exploding everywhere with the Da Vinci Code. So it was a really fun time to be working in translation rights and selling his, um, books into every language known to man um almost and so um I, you know and so i did learn both sides of the business from the beginning and it's something i still do um as i transitioned into working at the laura dale agency where i eventually became director of subrights and then when i opened context literary agency almost um four years ago now, uh, I still, you know, we still have a strong focus on translation rights as well. And, you know, I also love um, domestic rights. So uh, I have my hands in both um, areas of the business. And of course, we do our best with all the other areas too, film and television and audio and, and, and licensing and all those other fun parts, but I really grew up in both translation and domestic rights. And um, that's really, you know, where my heart lies still. So um, yeah, and context, like I said, is almost four years old now. And I'm really, I, I couldn't be happier. So sounds like you're exactly where where you ought to be i love this idea that someone comes to you almost like uh what all the olivander uh comes and says you're a, a wizard harry here's your magic wand yeah. what was it uh, that that prompted that you should be a literary agent you think i don't know exactly um and she never told me either um it, it was i guess I was majoring, I, I had a um, major in English and a minor in business, both things I enjoyed. Um, and I guess just from my personal personality, she was like, I think it would be a good fit for you. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. it appears she is very right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm very, I'm very grateful and I do love my career, so. Were you a big reader as a child? I was, yes. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up in a home where both my parents were big readers. I was always surrounded by books. Um, and I, I, you know, as most people of a certain age, um, I didn't have quite the selection of middle grade and young adult books as we have now. Um, I think it's amazing how, you know, when my kids go to the library, they have endless choices of middle grade, young adult, early reader, whatever it is, wherever they are. Um, and obviously we had some, but not the same extent. So I think it, you know, I, so I grew up reading what there was, but also classics like, you know, Mark Twain and things like that as a child even. So yeah. Was that uh, maybe impressing on you that, oh, there should be more of this? Uh, somebody should really do something to get more middle grade and YA books out there. A little bit. I mean, I think when I was younger, it, I wasn't that smart that I thought of it in that way. But as I got older, definitely, I, I was 
Um, you know, and I think my tastes evolve as I grow and as I see, you know, I have uh, three children, 13, 11, and eight, and I, and they're boys. So very different tastes than mine in a lot of ways, even though they'll read almost anything. <laughs> but um, also just seeing what they love and what they don't love has also changed kind of the way what I am looking for in certain ways too. So like for an example, I um, personally don't love, you know, bathroom humor, but they think it's hilarious. <laughs> so now I just don't mind it as much in a manuscript and stuff like that. So um, nothing like major or life-changing, but just little things like that. Oh, I think bathroom humor can be extremely life-changing. <laughs> <laughs> so... So if you get a bathroom humor manuscript, like, I don't know, then maybe you go find the boys and read it to them and see what they say. Yeah, although they're terrible beta readers because they literally love everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> they sound like great beta readers for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those are my favorite kind. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, straight, uh, straight in Asian, were you ever thinking that maybe at some point you would write books yourself or did you just want to be in publishing? What, what was the impetus? Yeah, no, I'm not. I mean, obviously I do writing in terms of pitch letters and things like that, but I am not a writer. I'm not a storyteller. Um, that is not one of my skills, I don't think. So I was never um, interested in the writing for me aspect of it, but I have always loved books and I've always really also felt how important books can be in the lives of everybody. Um, you know, I think that people almost take for granted what they are taught in books and don't even necessarily realize they're being taught. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's an, a really important industry in that way. I think we have a certain responsibility to make sure that we're putting out responsible books too. Um, and so, uh, you know, it is definitely an industry that I wanted to be a part of because as we've said a few times, I do love books like so much. I love reading. I love what books can do. I love what books can accomplish. Um, and so I definitely did want to be involved in them in some ways. And since I'm not a storyteller, um, it was definitely the, you know, business side of it, the publishing side of it. So how um, did you get your, your start, uh, so to speak, with um, Sanford Greenberger uh, mm -hmm. Associates? Do you go in as an as an intern? How do you get started with them? So yeah, so I um, I had interned in a couple of other places, and then I did start as an intern for them. Um, and while I was uh, interning for them, a job opened up, um, and I transitioned into that job. Um, and I was working, yeah, and I worked there for a few years. And it was a really great experience. They were a much bigger agency than the Laura Dale agency where I went afterward. Um, so, you know, they offered different approaches and, and um, that was helpful to have too. And now, you know, context is a smaller agency as well. Well, what are the, um, I mean, obviously Sanford Greenberg and Laura Dale, amazing agencies. We, we, we all agree. Fantastic, both of them. Uh, but what, what are the big different, what are some of the big differences between a larger agency versus a smaller, more intimate agency? Um, <clears throat> I would say that one thing, for example, at Sanford Greenberger, you had a 
like an HR person. Um, and so if I, you know, had an issue with health insurance, I would go to the HR person or, you know, just things like that. And at a smaller agency, you're not going to have an HR person. Um, at a larger agency, you will have someone who might do you know, someone in charge of contracts at the smaller agency, we often contract that out or do it ourselves. Um, at a large agency, you might have someone in charge of royalty statements. At a smaller agency, we are generally in charge of going over royalty statements, which I happen to love. Um, like, I love finding you know, digging deep into it and just really figuring out where all the sales are, like all that little nitty gritty stuff. Um, and um, so, you know, there it's, I would say that the big difference really is just things like that, where again, like they might have an in-house accountant, I contract out accounting, you know, thing, just things like that, so. When you're uh, diving deep into royalties, what kind of things are you looking for? Just abnormalities or where the... Where Definitely the looking for abnormalities. Also making sure that, you know, um, I mean... I would say that most of the time this doesn't happen, but I have definitely found places where um, if there are multiple editions of a book, um, the threshold um, for when the royalty rate goes from one point to another has been missed. Um, and then you say, hey, they're supposed to be earning this higher royalty rate. So you have to literally like count up and make sure that everything has been um, added correctly on their end too. And it's not, no one is ever doing anything maliciously. It's more like there are two editions. And so in their systems, it didn't trigger that it should be at the higher royalty rate. Um, because no one's going, a person isn't really going over the royalty statements. It's just really more automatic. Um, for most publishers. Um, and so, yeah, there are things like that. You make sure that um, they aren't, uh, you know, selling too many high discount books because then you start questioning where the sales are going. Like you just, there are lots of questions that I make sure are not, um, you know, there are just lots of steps I make sure are being hit when I go over a royalty statement to make sure that the publisher um is taking care of my author and that you know my author is getting the royalties they deserve and the you know um placement they deserve and everything like that well then i believe you say that that's enjoyable to say i don't know about that but now i hear it's a treasure hunt you're gonna find <laughs> it's a little bit of a treasure hunt i mean fortunately i don't find things all that often you don't i don't want to find things i don't want <laughs> you know, anything to be wrong, but every once in a while you do. And even if it's just an extra $2, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> um, although that's unusual, but yeah. Well, when you, when you find something like that, I assume there's a nice diplomatic way to go and say, Hey, I hope you're having a wonderful day, publisher. Everything is great. Just so you know, I love you, but <laughs> I, found yeah, again, I never think it's malicious. So it's not like I'm coming at them saying like, you guys are doing this terrible thing. It's more like, hey, I think there was a mistake somewhere. Can we fix it? And can it be the case where you find something, you know, some some sort of uh, abnormality on, on a royalty statement and you have to weigh, do I take this to their attention against how many future books do I want to sell this publisher or anything like that? I have not found that to be the case um, because... 
first of all, I am the agent, so it's my job to do things like this, and most publishers are aware of that. I very much, when I assign the clients and when we talk about the relationship between an author and a publisher and an agent and a publisher, I always tell them, you get to do the fun things with your editor and your publisher, and I get to do the less fun things with your editor and your publisher. I'm the one who deals with all the problems. I'm the one who deals with mistakes in royalty statements or anything else that might come up um that is less fun that's not editorial that's not you know marketing and publicity and fun things like that i'm you know so and i believe that most publishers are aware that that's my job as well so they're they know that i'm not trying to um you know I, and I, I, I don't think I'm ever nasty about it. I think I'm, you know, I make sure that I, I'm very businesslike. Like this is our business. You do your side of the business. I do my side of the business, and my side of the business includes finding mistakes in royalty statements if there are, and you know, making sure that you are doing your, you know, what you've promised, kind of. So um, I have not found it to be a problem. I love the idea that maybe there's some evil genius in publishing who's taking advantage of all these little uh, two editions, like $2 from this author, $2 from that author, and just adding it all together to... <laughs> I don't think publishing is organized enough to do that, frankly. I... <laughs> all, all our systems, I mean, the public, yeah, I don't think we're uh, we're there yet. Maybe one day. <laughs> it's probably not the, probably not the white collar crime that you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, now I'm curious, what does a publisher have to do to get to see the nasty version of you? Um, so in general, I actually don't think you get much from being nasty in life. Um, I think that I can be extremely persistent and I can like be in your inbox or on your phone or on the phone with you every day trying to get what I, what I need without being nasty. Um, I think, um, you know, I, yeah, so that's my personal philosophy. Um, I think it's a actually it's a philosophy that we follow at context. Um, I do have a couple of people that I work with, and we've discussed this about how it's important to kind of put out into the world what you want in the world, um, and with books and with kind of this way of negotiating. And I don't think my clients have suffered for it. I do really well in contract negotiations. I do really well in, you know, I've never had an experience where if we're going to go back to royalty statements for a minute, where I found a mistake and they have not fixed it because they know that it's a mistake. So they're happy to kind of make amends, um, you know, so I really don't think that it is to anybody's benefit for the nasty to come out, but I can be very, very, very persistent. <laughs> so to take a moment, get the nastiness under control and then yeah. in a polite professional business manner. Yeah. I, I kind of complain to my colleagues and have, you know, and friends in the industry. I'm like, can you believe this? And then move on and deal with it. So <laughs> um, so you were a uh, vice president and a director of sub rights with, with Laura Dale. And then now you've got your own agency and you are the president. So how does that change everything for you in terms of, I'm, ass I'm assuming that's taking a part of your day that would have gone to, to ju just be, not just being an agent, but, but agent responsibilities, client uh, author responsibilities, all that stuff. Now you've also got, you're, you're running the, you're running the show. 
right? There's there's two other agents under you that are hoping that you, uh, the context that are continue to go well squarely on your shoulders, right? Yeah. So um, I do. You know what? Since I've since I was director of subrights um, and at Laura Dale Agency, that always took up a certain amount of my time. Um, so I always had a relatively small list because of that. So because I didn't want anybody to feel like I wasn't giving them my all. So, um, you know, our list here is smaller because we're a younger agency. So even if I do spend time on translation rights and sub rights, um, I still have more time to devote to running the agency. Um, so I think that because, and I, you know, I think because of that, we have, uh, it isn't really that much different in terms of my time management. Um, and I think also, um, I think you will find many agents are somewhat workaholics. Um, we don't know how to kind of turn it off. And so, uh, you know, I definitely have been taking more time and I've been, you know, going on more vacations and things like that. But I still am definitely a bit of a workaholic and you will still you know, get emails from me at 10 o'clock at night and I am studying. <laughs> so, um, and on weekends and things like that. So I think that, um, and it's, I think it's also because I love my job. Most agents I know love their jobs. So we're happy to kind of do this. Um, but it's definitely one of those industries where you have to kind of be willing to give it your all. So so hopelessly biased that when I talk to people in other positions, I'm like, no, oh, you should be a workaholic. Take time for yourself. Come now. But I'm talking to an agent. Work harder for your authors. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. I actually, it's funny because, you know, I realize that a lot of people in this industry have burned out. Um, and, you know, I didn't want the people who work with me at Context to burn out. So I actually needed a um, rule of the agency that you have to be offline. Um, I mean, you can do your own internal work, but you cannot communicate with authors, you cannot communicate with um, you know, editors, whatever, between 5 p.m. on Friday and uh, 10 a.m. on Sunday. And really, you shouldn't be online on Sunday also, but I didn't feel like I could actually tell anybody, like, you're not allowed to go for that long of a period of time, but it is context policy. And the hope is that at least you'll have some time to recharge, even if it's just like a day and a half where your job, like you can tell your clients, I cannot help you. I, it is context policy. We are offline. Um, so yeah. Sounds like a reasonable thing. I'm sure there are some authors that are always pushing buttons. <laughs> there always are, right? <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, it's part of life, right? You know, it's a, it's a very, it's an industry that you become, I mean, the authors are so emotionally invested. I'm, if I'm emotionally invested in every book I take on and every book I try to sell, then of course the authors are 10 times more so, if, a hundred, if not a hundred times more so, right? It's their baby. Um, so it's hard to make those boundaries because I do understand that this is so, there's so many emotions and so much invested in this, but at the same time, we can't burn out, right? So we have to make that work-life balance where we have the time to recharge and we have the time to kind of um, 
just do things that we enjoy um, while at the same time recognizing how fraught it is for authors when things are happening in this industry. Even though I always say there aren't any real emergencies in publishing, um, there are, you know, no one's going to... Um, not, publishing moves so slowly that it's unlikely that if you wait a day or two days, anything will really change, <laughs> you know? Um, but I mean, we try, I, I generally am very responsive. It's rare that my authors don't hear back from me pretty quickly, um, you know, unless they know I'm offline for whatever reason. And I try to make sure to communicate to them when I will be offline for whatever reason. Um, or more slow to respond for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, I, I also think that, like I said, we need our time too. Well, hopefully authors that are paying attention and seeing how, 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 how prevalent uh, burnout has been uh, amongst those in the agent uh, in the industry will say, Hey, you know what, if my agent needs a day and a half and I can't get an answer till Sunday at 10 Oh one. That's the hope. That's the hope. My agent for longer than maybe if I bothered them nonstop. Right. Exactly. So, um, that's the hope that it'll just give everybody time to recharge and think and everything. So. Plus all those other uh, fantastic agents out there who are listening to us who are thinking, man, I'm just so burnt out on my job. Nobody ever gives me a break. Ooh, context literary sounds like <laughs> I should get a day and a half break. I should head that way. Uh, or just, uh, uh, you know, maybe that's a policy that my agency should uh, enact as well. So, yeah. Well, maybe I should just be a thing a crowd. Maybe we've just discovered the solution for all of publishing just right now. <laughs> just implement If only it were that easy. Just take off a day. <laughs> Everything will be solved. But you're welcome, um, publishing problems fixed. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. But I I unfortunately I think uh, there's more to it than just the day off here and there. So or else somebody competitive would be like, oh, okay, here's my advantage. At uh, 5.01 on Friday, I get to work. <laughs> there will always be that person. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, what, what do you think is, is, is causing these issues we're seeing of, um, of widespread burnout and dissatisfaction in publishing and what solutions would you offer? I mean, I think that's a little bit above my pay grade, but um, from my understanding, basically... Uh, you know, there's just not enough staff for the jobs that need to be done. Um, and so if you want, if publishers want to retain editors and um, then we need to think about greater staffing and um, things like that. So. Why? Well, yeah. Yeah, but it is above my pay grade. Like, I wish I could solve all every every problem, but uh, I I can't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. Uh, when I was talking to, and I'm I'm gonna get this wrong, so I almost shouldn't say. You know what? I'm not gonna say her name. When I was talking to another agent, and this way, if I'm wrong about the numbers, uh, don't, don't worry about it. But I think she'd said it was right around. She was talking to an editor. Uh, who had received in April, who had received over 500 agented submissions already. And this is a middle grade YA editor. Mm -hmm. Is that pretty consistent with your experience? Are, are editors that overworked? 
They are. They really are. And, you know, once upon a time, I don't think, I'm not sure the numbers of submissions have changed, but I think that once upon a time, um, editors didn't have to write their own copy. I think once upon a time, editors were not also responsible for doing things for their superiors that they are now. So even if they got that many submissions, they didn't have as many other responsibilities that they had to take care of um, as they do now. And so I think that there was, you know, I think, you know, when you're lower down, you're, when you're an assistant editor and you're, you know, finally able to start buying books and things like that, you're still reading for your boss. You're still doing all these other things for your boss. Plus you also have to do the reading. And if you finally acquire something to all the work that's involved in that, like there's just not enough time in the day. Um, and so I think that it's just really, yeah, I think it's just really a staffing issue. I think that we need more, I think publishers need more people um, if they want to avoid burnout, so. Maybe they just need to hire uh, assistants as well as editors and, and keep those roles a little, little separated. Mm -hmm. Something that uh, blew my mind that I read um, is that some of the um, higher ups within publishing companies don't do email. Uh, they're, they're, they, they, they have uh, their editors writing emails for them because they, they, they can't be bothered to learn electronic. Surely that's just anecdotal. That can't be widespread. I don't think it's widespread. I think it's more, I, I mean, I definitely think it exists, but I don't think it's super common, I would say. Um, so, yeah. Okay, fair. Because <laughs> <laughs> I read this and I'm like, oh, well, that's why Amazon came up with the Kindle before you publishing companies. Of course, they're going to eat their lunch if you can't do if you can't do email. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, things change so quickly, right? Like, I started in book publishing um, in two, you know. A, a long time ago. And when I started, everyone was still mailing manuscripts and, you know, in those manuscript boxes and things like that. And part of my job as an assistant was to do those mailings and things like that. I mean, now I don't know any agents who actually mail manuscripts on a regular basis. Um, it's all email. So that takes away a step from us. But then it's just sitting in the inbox of an editor and it's a lot easier to get lost. So, you know, and I saw someone recently talking about how many publishers don't have proper logging systems. So it is somewhat easy to get to have a manuscript get lost if an agent doesn't follow up on it because those systems in the book publishing world aren't in place because it started when people were physically mailing the books and it hasn't really been up the, or the manuscripts and it hasn't really been updated. Um, so, you know, when you got a physical manuscript, it was sitting on your desk waiting for you to read, right? Like you couldn't avoid it. But um, so that, so the systems have not quite been updated to reflect the new reality where it's not actually a physical manuscript anymore. So just little things like that could be really helpful too, I think. So the electronic manuscript could literally be sitting there for months and nobody knows it's there because it's not taking up uh, physical space. Right. Which is why it's part of the job of, of an agent to follow up after a certain amount of time and say, hey, have you had the chance to look at this manuscript yet? 
just thinking if there, there are authors out there that need another reason to be up late at night worried. There you go. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you have an agent, it's, I'm almost certain that agent is doing their job and following up on these manuscripts. So. Gotcha. I, obviously, you're cultivating relationships with editors, so you know that you can't be persistent without getting on their nerves or adding yeah. to their workload. Yeah. Um, and I think even editors I don't know very well, but I think might be a good fit if I reach out to them. They also they know what an agent's job is. They know it's an agent's job to follow up after a certain amount of time. So, and I'm I'm assuming there are steps you can take without giving away all your without without giving away your trade secrets. There are steps you can take to make sure one you're going to stand out in a crowd of 500 submissions, even agented submissions, but two to make sure that you're not doing an editor's work for them, but making sure there's less work for them to have to do in terms of preparing a pitch that can be uh, sold. Cause you know, you got to sell not just the editor, right? But you got to sell whatever the the, the marketing team. Yeah, though, yes. Um, I do my best to write a fantastic pitch letter because even if I, you know, it's funny before COVID, I would always call up and speak to editors before I sent a manuscript. They were at their desks and I would call up and I would, I think that sometimes talking to people makes them more excited than just receiving an email in their inbox. Um, and, but then COVID hit and nobody was at their desks and I didn't feel comfortable calling people up. But, you know, I didn't, never knew what they were going through, you know. Again, if you're at your desk, I'm assuming you're in a work mode, but when, you know, when you're at home or dealing with whatever you needed to deal with when COVID was happening, um, I just stopped calling. So, uh, and I started just emailing. So I, you know, there was even more of an emphasis placed on that written pitch that I would send out. Um, so I do my best and I workshop it with the people that I, you know, the other context agents and make sure that they think it's the best it can be too. Um, and they workshop their pitch letters among the agency as well. So, um, but yeah, and I do think that it's part of our jobs to cultivate those relationships so that when someone gets a manuscript from me, they're like, oh, I usually like her stuff and I like, you know, her philosophies on publishing or whatever it is. So uh, I'll take a look at it more quickly. So, yeah. Doesn't oh, yeah. work. <laughs> and she could have. There were several opportunities for her to get nasty, and she never did. So I'm going to make sure. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. So those are. So I do think that the pitch letter is really important because also an editor sharing it with, you know, their assistant or with other people when they pass it around. So you have to get everybody excited by this pitch letter too. So. So uh, there are uh, two, uh, several agents uh, working with you for auxiliary rights and such, but you've got Jessica Sensheimer uh, there at Context, and then you've got Monica Rodriguez. So is it a fair assumption based on what I just heard that if I'm represented by Monica Rodriguez, at some point you might be weighing in on my pitch, I'm going to benefit from your expertise. Could be yes, we're a very collaborative agency in general. Um, you know, we are constantly talking through what 
issues we're having with our clients or things we're excited about with our clients or whatever is happening, we're always talking it through. Um, I do believe in this idea of a brain trust where the more ideas and, you know, the more people you have working on something, the better ideas you're going to come out with because I might have the basis of an idea. And then Jessica mentioned something that makes it even better. And then Monica brings it to the next level. Um, and we all have, because we all have different ways of thinking about things, right? Because we're all different people. So I think that that's always really helpful and really um, exciting. Um, and, you know, Monica actually is our director of brand management, as well as being an agent, which she comes from a marketing and publicity background. So she, not, aside from working with her own clients, she works with all the agency clients to make sure that, you know, they are getting the, you, you know, that we're doing the best we can for their books. Um, and she, is the you know point person with publishers for all the marketing and publicity efforts that publishers are making as well and she works hand in hand with them um so you know she really knows all of our clients as well gotcha so you're gonna hopefully get some great mark when, when, when your book is sold you're gonna get some great marketing from the publisher but just in case that doesn't work out monica is gonna be there with yes. you Work, I mean, is she going to help you set up your social media account? Or is she going to? Yeah, she helps you with whatever you need. I mean, she actually does have monthly seminars on things like social media um, that are open to all the uh, context literary clients. But she also definitely will is always there for questions. If you have a question about where something should go on your website, or if you have a question of how often should you tweet about your book, or should you go on TikTok or whatever, she's always there for questions like that. And then she also, you know, will we have meetings with our authors before publication um and so you know around the time that we might be setting up a meeting with our uh with the marketing and publicity team at the publisher as well um and so um you know we come up with ideas of our own and whatever the publisher isn't going to take care of we also try to do as much as we can on our end and also i'm really sorry my window was open because it was a really gray and overcast day um and then all of a sudden the sun is shining on my face <laughs> so if i like squinting at you i'm sorry i hadn't pulled the shades because it was so overcast that it was nice to have a little bit of that natural light but now it's a little too much natural light <laughs> just so. assume open the ark of the covenant uh, right behind the uh, laptop and <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. and i have a desktop so it's not like i can move it so easily so <laughs> so uh these seminars that, that monica does can anybody get in on this or is this for, it's for our agency clients yeah Gotcha. So that's where the real top secret stuff is happening. It's real, yeah, where the top secret stuff is happening. And I think it is a real benefit for our clients to have this um, internal resource that they can listen to these seminars and they can also ask questions whenever they want to. Well, um, I always like to ask why of all the agencies that uh, potential querying authors listening to us could choose, why is context the right fit for not everybody, but for the best of them? So I think, as I mentioned, we are a super collaborative agency. So you're not getting just one agent. You're getting the whole agency working on your book at any given time. Obviously, you have your primary agent who's going to be your contact point and who is your true, you know, your 
primary advocate, the one who's going to be in touch with you every day, or not every day, but who on the day-to-day -day basis and who's going to be in touch with the publisher and with anybody else, um, and the one who's really actively working on your book. But you also do have the brain trust of everybody else here. And um, you do have Monica, like I said, I, you know, who is always there for marketing and publicity questions and general brand building questions. So even the, you know, let's say we sell your book, your book's not coming out for a year and a half, two years, two and a half years, sometimes you can spend that time building your brand so that when your book comes out, you're in a better place um, to sell it uh, too. So, you know, we take that long-term approach as well. And I think that also, as we mentioned before, um, we spend a lot of time thinking about what kind of books we want to put into the world. And we spend a lot of time thinking about kind of how we want this world to be. And we, um, you know, I think are an agency that does put a lot of um, stock in just kind of being um, kind or not being nasty as a general rule. And I think that that is something that most, that many authors might want. Um, and again, we're very persistent and we have amazing contracts and we have, you know, we do not, um, you know, let that get in our way of being the best possible advocate for our client. But I think that that is, I think that is a benefit of our agency that you know that you're going with kind of a good place. Um, and also, as I mentioned, I do have a pretty small list um, of authors that I represent. And I'm always looking for more authors, but I'm never going to be that person who has, you know, 300 clients. And I think that that is nice. I really can give a lot of attention to each of my authors. Um, and that's a goal of mine um, to make sure that I never have too many authors where I can't give each person the time they need. Um, so those are some of the reasons that I think you should go with context if ever in a one of what we call a beauty contest. But, uh, you know, if you're trying to decide between multiple author uh, offers of representation, so. A beauty contest, huh? So it's between you and Laura Dale, literary. <laughs> you got to decide which of you is prettier. Am I, am I hearing that right? I mean, prettier in terms of what we can offer you, not in terms of, you know, dark hair versus blonde hair. So. <laughs> nope, I'm going by font that you've used on your website. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, times New Roman, I'll get out of here. You're off my list. <laughs> um, I would hope most authors don't make decisions that way, but you never know. Some might. So. Not the one smart, savvy enough to be listening yeah. to <laughs> that's true <laughs> the, the best of the best that are here um so am i to take from that then if i want to query you in the back of my mind i have to also be thinking well i've got a i've got a pitch in such a way that i'm gonna get jessica and monica on board as well and no 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 we each make our own decisions um we don't you know everyone takes on the authors that they feel passionate about, but once you are an agency client, you do have the whole brain trust, so. Gotcha. Well, that leads us to, uh, well, we want to talk a little bit about how how we can break in and, 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 and get in that brain trust. How many clients do you have on your list right now? Ballpark? Um, I probably have about 25. Um, yeah, I think I have about 25. And how many would you 
in a good year, how many new clients might you take on? One or two. Gotcha. So the best of the best of the best, we got to we got to really raise our game if we want to be one of the select 25 to 30 that you're going to be working with. Yeah. Um, and it's also, I mean, it's also a matter of taste, right? Like someone, you might be an incredible author um, and have an incredible manuscript, but it's just not something that I'll give you an example, which I don't love World War II books. Um, I don't love books set in the Holocaust. Um, I think that, you know, there are too many of them. As a Jew, I mean, I'm Jewish. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors. And I think that we have for so long been, um, you know, so many of the books that center Jews have just been about the Holocaust and about World War II. And even though a lot of the World War II books now are not even about Jews, I just don't, connect with them. They're just not for me. Um, so your book might be the best World War II book out there, but it's probably still not the right fit for me. Um, or your book might be the best kind of, you know, book that with a dog um, protagonist, but I have never loved books where animals were the protagonists. So it might not be the right fit for me. Um, so it's just kind of, um, Again, like your book might be incredible, but it might not be the right one for me. Gotcha. So I'm thinking of now Snoopy, the Red Baron and in World War II. Like that's the worst possible choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but that doesn't mean it's not perfect for a different agent. So was it uh war in general? So if I've got something that's set during, I don't know, the uh um a world war one a different war uh, yeah, no, it's really just more world war ii and even if it ends um yeah i just uh i think we should you know focus on other things i think world war ii has almost become like a um i don't know it, it stopped meaning what it's supposed to mean because it's just this way of telling stories that you know it's a it's I mean, people place stories there and tell lots of different stories and people have kind of um, I, I I worry that people are forgetting what the Holocaust actually meant because there are all these books about love and about you know other things that happened to take place during World War II with World War II almost as a background so well, I also think it's a little bit lazy, especially for American writers. Like, oh, let's talk about that atrocity. My friend, there are so many atrocities just right here at home. You could. <laughs> you there know. are. And, you know, not I don't think that we should kind of make light of any of them. But the world and, you know, like I said, I've lost family in the Holocaust. It's I think it's an important thing to learn about um, as a historical fact. But there are also so many other horrendous things that have happened in this world and are still happening, as you said. So, you know, um, I, I don't want it to become almost like this amusement, like a way of breathing amusement. By, um, but, but that's just me. So many other people disagree with me, but that's why I'm not the right person for a World War II book. So... <laughs> Well, me also, I have a bad habit of laughing about serious subjects because the world just sometimes hurts so much that it's about the only response I have I have to offer. 
my 11 year old to get, he also like when things are, when he um, feels bad about something, he starts smiling and it's, it's hard because you want to like wipe that smile off his face <laughs> but um you know but he, but it's just who he is like he can't I don't know he's when he's really upset about something he often smiles instead of like cries it's an interesting thing but yeah that's certainly the more comfortable choice <laughs> <laughs> person yeah well, moving away from my discomfort and into the discomfort of potential queriers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I help people to get the, give them the best chance that they can to, to turn your head. Uh, and I know that um, you're looking, you said that the most important thing for you when you're looking for at a manuscript is to connect to the protagonist and that you, yeah. What, so what kind of things are going to make you connect to a protagonist versus not? Um. I would say that the protagonist has to be kind of really an interesting person um, and have struggles like we all have struggles and um, think about things and have interests and have, you know, outside of just the story, right? So you're telling a story, you have a big hook, you have a big plot, but what does this person do when they are in their downtime and what does this person do you know when they're nervous and I want to get to really know your protagonist and also preferably the supporting cast as well um so that if they were to walk into my office right now I'd be like hey I know what to offer you for a beverage or I I know what to say like let's go out and do this because that's what you'll enjoy you know um I like to really feel like I know my protagonists, not just in the sense, not just how they would be in the story that you're telling, but I think that they're a really well-drawn character. I would know that how they would react again, if they walked into my office or if I ran into them at Starbucks or whatever. So. Well, I'm talking about just classic characters, not, not necessarily your clients, which I assume all have written amazing characters to have become. They have, they have. What are some, of your, what are some examples of, of favorite uh, characters that you feel like you know that way? Um, well, it's funny. So um, I don't know if this is a classic, but it comes up all the time. But um, in Graceling, um, I feel like, I feel like Kristen Kishore does that super well. And I always wish I had the ability to put myself to sleep, which, because <laughs> I'm a terrible sleeper as a general rule, but um, I think that she does a great job. I think Rick Riordan does a great job of that, and he also, um, you know, I think his characters are really well done as a general rule, and I think also that um, he does a great job of teaching without anyone knowing he's teaching, like, you know, all so every kid who has read him now knows tons about mythology. <laughs> and I, I don't know if kids still have to learn mythology. Mine didn't. But I remember growing up, I had to. And they might still have to in college. I don't know. But, um, you know, so I think that that's fantastic, too. Um, and I, I mean, people might laugh at me for this, but War and Peace for a long time was one of my favorite books because I felt I knew those characters so, so well. Um, and um, I know that that's a tome and I know that it's not something that a lot of people say is a favorite book of theirs, but I really 
when I read that, I loved it so much because of the characters. Um, so those are some examples. And so it's those specific concrete details that are going to add up to a whole that, oh, well, now I know all these little bits about a person, like the beverage that they choose. I feel like every query you get for the end of time. Yeah, is you're going to say. <laughs> I mean, that's just a random example. Obviously, you don't, I don't need to know anybody's favorite drink, especially in a lot of books. It just doesn't come up and that's fine. But I want to know, um, you know, just information about a person beyond what I need to know for the plot of the book. And obviously that doesn't mean to bog me down in details, but things come up, you know, like, you know, the person might be wearing a purple shirt every single day just because they love purple. Um, and so you do need some character description. And if your character description happens to be that they wear the same color every day, then I'm like, oh, that person's favorite color must be purple, you know, or if they do always remember to take a water bottle with them because they're always thirsty and they always want their water with them or with, or their Diet Coke or their coffee or whatever it is, um, you know, I think there are ways to work it into your manuscript where you do have these extra pieces of information um, without actually bogging, you know, slowing anything down um, when you're telling your story. And I do think it makes for a more immersive experience for the author for the reader. Ah, and then you've also said that you're looking, uh, if there's a relationship, you want the people in the relationship to respect each other. Uh, now, what if that's an adversarial relationship or a relationship that's on the rocks now, but it's going to get better by the story's end? Yeah, that's fine. I just, you know, there are, as I think I mentioned before, that I really feel that publishing has a responsibility in what we publish. Um, and not everybody has role models of what a proper relationship should be. And I think that, especially in kids' books, we need, to, if it's a bad relationship, we need to make it clear it's a bad relationship. If it's a healthy relationship, we have to have it be a healthy relationship. Um, so that people know their own worth and know what they can expect in real life. Um, and I think that, you know, if you have a book about, you know, if you have a book about an assassin or if you have a book about a thief, everybody knows that those are bad things, but it's a little bit more insidious when they're in a relationship and you're like, well, they are doing bad things, but they could, but is this a bad relationship or is this a good relationship? Is this a healthy relationship or a not healthy relationship? Like things that aren't clear, I think need to be made clear, especially in children's books where people might not realize that they're getting this idea that they ship this relationship, um, but it's really not one they should be wanting to, you know, emulate in their own lives. So that's what I mean. I, I do feel this responsibility where we should um, model what is a good relationship versus a bad relationship in the sense of, you know, there can definitely be bad relationships in books, but it should be clear that that's a bad relationship and not one that you want to be involved in in your life. I do like the idea of the assassin with the perfect home life. Ah, if it just weren't for their career, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you know what? Someone could be, uh, what's it? Dexter, right? Dexter always treated his, uh, 
sick, you know, the people around him really well, he would just then go and murder people, right? Like, um, so uh, you can, I mean, I'm not, obviously nobody should model themselves after Dexter either, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, and in real life, I think many serial killers actually do have good relationships in their, um, like they hide well. And that's why it's so hard to catch them. I always joke that the son of Sam loved a dog. It was <laughs> very, very respectful. Yeah, Hitler loved dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... But is it uh, because you're you're dealing primarily with middle grade and with young adult that you want impressionable readers to see these these good relationship models? Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I do. Um, or again, like no, when it's not a good relationship. Ah, and then you've also said that you want to make the mon you want to see the mundane made epic. Uh, and what's the best way? What, what kind of mundane things can be made to seem epic without being felt like they're um, uh, they're being overdone or, or overplayed? So, you know, I think that like, uh, that's a really great question because I've said it without actually giving any examples, but um, I think that, you know, any good kind of um, rom-com in a way does that where you take your regular relationship but you make it epic in some way um so whether it's you know being trapped in an elevator or whether it is you know having to plan a ball festival with your yeah you know someone that you maybe like or maybe don't like um or whether it is uh you know having to um put on a play with somebody like all of these things are mundane but you can make them into something so much more when you have a really great when you have really great characters and when you surround it with a really great plot too so i so i do like these kind of slice of life moments where everybody's experienced them but not on the level that you're seeing in this book does that help yeah, so it's a, it'll be a universal experience, but at a level that's going to be more entertaining than if I'm just watching. Um, exactly, and I and I do. I think that's kind of the bread and butter of a rom com, right? Like where it's you're you know you're working in a bookstore, or um, you know you have a summer job at McDonald's, or whatever it is, and all of a sudden, and that's something that many people have, um, or you're working at a summer camp, whatever, and then all of a sudden it's more or you are in the school play or in the school band or whatever like these are things that everybody not everybody but many people do experience to different levels right but then all of a sudden in this instance it's something so much more and then obviously you could take it to the super extremes right where like you go on a class trip to a museum and all of a sudden the museum is locked down because there are terrorists in the museum or whatever like I don't think it necessarily needs to go to quite that level but if you but taking it into something more than what I have experienced when I did the same thing. I uh, teach writing workshops um, here locally, and my most recent one, I had a submission, it was a rom-com, and the protagonist worked in a bookstore with three cats, and I went, ah, uh, but it'll be popular, it's probably the right move. <laughs> so, yeah, but you can't just have them, I mean, 
if you work in a bookstore, most of the time, it's really not so exciting, you know, like it might be fun and it might be interesting, but it's not really exciting. So putting a book has to be exciting too, you know, for whatever reason. Well, terrorists have taken over the bookstore. Oh no. Have taken over the bookstore um, or, you know, aliens have landed in the bookstore, whatever it is, but we're here for all the money. Oh, my friend, there was, there were so many businesses you could have gone to. to I know, right? Like bookstores that were all No, hopefully, no, bookstores should have tons of money. <laughs> I'm putting that into the world too. I agree. Let's, let's put that into the world together. Lots of, lots of money for all the independent bookstores out there. Although that uh, brings me to a question that's been very much on my mind and I know is probably on the mind of other authors listening who write their middle grade. And that's Barnes and Noble's recent decision to cut their heart back what, to 2%, the, the Harry Potters and the whatever else they're going to maybe, uh, whatever, Rick Riordan, the, 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 the top 2% of hardbacks. How does that, how do you foresee that impacting middle grade as a genre going forward? And how are you preparing your clients to deal with this new obstacle? You know, first, I think I think that Barnes & Noble made this decision because they are trying to keep themselves open, right? Their CEO is someone who came from Waterstones who was having, and Waterstones in the UK was dying. And he came in, he made all these policy changes, and, and now Waterstones is once again thriving. Um, so I do want to give Barnes & Noble the benefit of the doubt. There have been so many closures of Barnes & Noble stores. I think they want to survive and they are trying to think of ways to survive. And I think um, a lot of people go into the Barnes & Noble store and they see a hardcover for, you know, let's say a middle grade hardcover is $16. They're like, oh, $16, I could probably get it for cheaper on Amazon. So they go to Amazon and buy it instead. But then they see a middle grade paperback for, you know, $10, $9. And they're like, oh, all right, I can afford that. So they'll buy that. So I think that's, I mean, I can't speak for them for sure, but we all know that that's what so many people do when they go into independent bookstores too. They go in, they browse, they find something they like, then they go on Amazon to buy it for cheaper. So I think that in order for Barnes & Noble to survive, they're thinking, let's lower the basic price point of our books so that people don't leave the store and buy it somewhere else for less money, right? This is what, I, again, I'm just making suppositions here. Like this is, I don't have any inside knowledge, but um, we for years have been complaining about people who do that, who go into bookstores and buy the hardcovers then from Amazon, right? So um, maybe they're thinking that this is a way to stop that. And, um, you know, I think that obviously it's heartbreaking to have this decision that they're not going to um, have hardcover books, but if it's the way to save the kind of brick and mortar Barnes and Noble bookstores, then maybe we have to give them a little bit of leeway. Um, and, you know, maybe it will bring more success if they're able to sell more books, then maybe more real estate within their stores will go back to being for books as opposed to Lego sets and whatever. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm really withholding judgment 
at the moment. Um, I'm more commiserating with my clients than anything else um, because it is hard. But also remember that Barnes Noble for middle grade books often didn't take much in the way of stock until there were like three or four books in the series anyway for series um, because they and so and then for kind of these standalone books, um, they also, I mean, they take some, but a lot of, I mean, for years I've been going to Barnes and Nobles and seeing mostly paperbacks, frankly. Um, I don't know, obviously they're the hardcover tables and maybe it's going to be reduced even further, but I don't think they've been taking a lot of hardcovers for middle grade for a long time. And for young adult, they definitely have. Um, and I, so I think young adults is going to be impacted more than middle grade. At least this is in the New York area where I go to Barnes and Noble. Um, but, um, you know, I think again, like I'm going to withhold judgment, see what happens and see if it's, you know, is really more of Barnes and Noble just trying to survive and we all want Barnes and Noble to survive. So um, I think it's a really difficult thing. Like, I think that obviously authors make more money on hardcovers and maybe we have to make publishers rethink royalty structures and things like that, though it's not so easy to do that. Um, but for now, I'm a little bit of, in a little bit of a wait and see kind of um, mindset about Barnes and Noble. Well, that's reasonable. Of course, the one problem with these conversations is the industry overall, big changes come and, and, and move so fast that whatever we say is almost outdated by the time by the time these air uh, or immediately there thereafter, because we are seeing uh, so many changes. I see is on that because it's, it's been in the back of my mind, but mm -hmm. we've seen a number of other changes here post got knock on every piece of wood there is post or mid pandemic yeah. close to the end than the beginning, I, I hope. Uh, wherever we're at with that. Um, but we have seen these dramatic changes. So what are you doing to help and what is Context Literary doing to, to help ensure that your authors are set and ready to continue to flourish whatever uh, becomes of the market or, or book distribution? Well, again, um, we hired Monica. So <laughs> uh, Monica is able to kind of get, help you get your name out there to a greater extent than you might have been able to without someone who, with a background in this marketing and publicity and social media. Um, so, you know, I think it is a lot about name recognition now. Um, and so, you know, if there is that name recognition, then hopefully your books will be able to sell. I think also, you know, we do, I do pay very close attention to not only what's happening in the book industry here, but what's happening in the book industry globally. Um, you know, we're not the only ones with paper shortages and our paper shortages, shortages are not nearly as bad as the paper shortages in some other places. Um, so, you know, to, and just to keep in, an eye on what's new and upcoming and how people are choosing to read and what people are choosing to read and where people are choosing to read all of these things. I think that we can't just keep an eye on the publishing industry. I think we have to keep an eye on the kind of whole um, on what's happening in the world as a whole, because like, you know, if we're all heading into a recession again, which 
you know, hopefully we'll be able to avoid, but, um, and it seems like it's a pretty global one. Um, what does that mean for book publishing and how can we make sure that we stand out and, you know, make sure that, yeah, th there's a lot to think about all the time. Um, but I think the best thing we can do for our authors is just to make sure, help them with that brand recognition, with that name recognition, and help them write the best books that they possibly can write so that people fall in love with those books and just want to buy them. So. Well, I figure you're the person to ask because anybody who's been listening to us says, wait a minute, Context Literary four years ago established, and then a whole global pandemic hits, and you're still standing, still, <laughs> still making deals for your authors. You, yeah. you must have an, an ability to, to shift and move with the times that, that puts you in a competitive uh, position. I think I do. I mean, it's interesting because I founded Context before the pandemic. I We opened in 2019. So, um, you know, not that long before the pandemic, um, but as a remote agency. Um, my idea being that, you know, one thing that has definitely been a conversation within book publishing is about kind of how we can diversify. Um, and one of the suggestions that came up all the time was that, you know, New York is such a new, it, publishing is such a New York-based industry and New York is not an option for a lot of people. So I wanted this to be a remote agency that, so that I could hire people, not just in New York, and people didn't have to come to New York and order the work in publishing necessarily. Um, and so something like that. So then when the pandemic hit, all my systems were already in place to be remote. So uh, that worked out really well for me uh, in that sense. I mean, obviously there's not much in the way of a bright side of the pandemic, but, um, I think that we have become more remote as an industry in general. So hopefully that will open it up a little bit more. Um, and so, um, you know, I think, yeah, having certain flexibilities and trying to think about things again, more globally than just what's happening in New York or what's happening in the publishing industry does help, um, does help the agency think about things in a little bit of a different way and perhaps, um, helps our success as well. So that opens up the door for a, a more diverse uh, folks working uh, as agents who are going to hopefully uh, raise up the voices of more diverse authors. Mm -hmm. uh, and and also just, if you have somebody like Monica lives in Texas. So if you have somebody living in Texas, they're encountering different things every day than I'm encountering living in New York. So I think it also just helps open up my mind um, as to what it is like living day to day um, in different places. And that, and again, I think translation rights helps with that as well. I'm speaking to people from all over the world all the time. Um, another example is about how, you know, now it seems like TikTok is going to be allowing in the US, people are going to be able to kind of have associate links and be able to monetize a little bit more, which is something that already exists in Asia, you know, so if this, you know, comes as a surprise to a lot of people here, the monetizing of TikTok, but I was like, hey, it already exists. So this is not surprising to me, you know, like it, so, um, Right. So I think that having a diverse, you know, a diverse work pool um, in terms and, uh, you know, diversity of location and a diversity of people that you're speaking to definitely helps um, stay, you know, helps you stay, uh, you know, 
more mo I, I, more mobile and just like be able to think about things more quickly and more differently um, within the publishing industry and maybe able to adapt a little bit better too. Somebody who is listening to this in the Midwest or wherever and saying, I've always wanted to get into publishing, but I can't afford New York. How can they reach out to you and impress you and, and maybe get uh, brought on? Um, well, actually, there are, you know, we don't currently have an internship program. Um, but I would say that there are a lot of remote internships now. Um, the AALA, which used to be the AAR, but um, is, you know, has undergone its own kind of evolution and is now the AALA. Um, they offer paid internships. A number of um, literary agencies offer internship programs, some paid, some not. So I would say that actually, you know, I'm always happy to give kind of like informational interviews, but I might not be your best first stop um, in the sense that because I don't offer internship programs at the moment. Um, I just don't have the bandwidth for it. Um, but I think that one reason that you should be an intern before you join publishing is to see if you actually like it, right? Like you don't want to um, think like, I love books, I love this industry. I think I'll be, I think I would love being an agent. And then you're like, wait, this is what an agent does. I do not want to do that, you know? So I do think, I, I definitely started as an intern um, and there are different ways in. Some people start, you know, as an author and see things that way. And I think that's valid too. But I think you do a little bit wanting to know what you're getting into when you start in this industry because it's a very peculiar industry and it has lots of little quirks to it. Um, and you definitely have to, uh, so I do think it's a good thing to kind of, and I think that most of these internships, you can keep your job as you have it and work, you know, remotely as an intern too, so that you're not giving up your life, um, and trying for this inter, you know, changing your life for something you might not like, um, because you can't just love books. Like you don't spend as much time reading as you think you might. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I'm happy to answer questions, do informational interviews, that kind of thing. But you might also want to try to find other to find an internship if you're really thinking of becoming an agent um, so that you can learn those quirks and peculiarities and see if it actually is the right industry for you. Well, this is my hope for the whole industry. I hope that everyone's going to look and see how well Context uh, Literary is doing and say, hey, we should all be remote. And you should quit, playing, pay, quit paying Manhattan rents. You could get <laughs> that money for authors. You could, you could expand. You could get all kinds of folks working with you publishing. So, um, I mean, I don't think it's likely that, like, the publishers can become fully remote. Um, but... Uh, We'll see what happens as time goes. I will settle for as much remoteness as I can get. 25% <laughs> more remoteness, that's a win. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a lot of them are offering more flexibility than they were before the pandemic. Well, good. You can afford to pay um, uh, cheaper rents out here in the Midwest. You can afford to hire people. Um, actually, the, the salaries that you're offering for New Yorkers are about uh, what we're offering out yeah. here. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. But then you can have assistants as well as editors and and, and burnout will be reduced. See, we fix publishing. <laughs> Just move to the Midwest. <laughs> I'm watching our, our time and it's, it's flown by and I appreciate you being uh, so generous. 
Um, I do have to ask, because esteemed audience knows I would never forget to ask, Tamar, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? No, I have not. As we discussed, I'm not the kind of person who goes into haunted houses. <laughs> I have a little bit too much of a wish for that. But <laughs> so I have not seen a ghost um, and I have not seen a flying saucer. If there was one bit of advice that you could impart to everyone who's watching or listening to us, it, it would maybe make a significant difference in their chances in having a successful publishing career. What would you tell them? I'm sure most of the advice actually you've heard before, because if you're listening to this podcast, then you are someone who is doing research and you're, and that is really my biggest piece of advice, read in your category. I mean, it's so important to know what you're writing um, and who you're writing for. Um, and I would say, listen to podcasts like this, do your research, um, you know, make sure that you really know, because from my side and from the book publisher side, it's a business. Yes, we all love books and that's why we're here. And we didn't get into this publishing industry that cause, that pays little and causes burnout because, you know, we're, we're not in it for the money, but at the same time, we have to make sure that we survive. And in order to do that, we have to think of it as a business as well. Um, so you have to think of it as a business to a certain degree as well. You have to think of it as how am I going to, you know, sell my books? How am I going to, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, write an amazing book that you're passionate about um, and read in your category so, you're no, so you know what you're writing for. But also do think about it a little bit as a business, not just as your passion project, not just as your passion, because it needs to be both your passion and your business. And I hope that that is helpful. I think it's extremely helpful. This whole interview has been extremely helpful. <laughs> so thank you very much for, for making the time for me and for esteemed audience. Uh, this has been just uh, tremendous. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? So our website is contextlit.com. Um, I am on Twitter rarely. Um, and But I would say that that's where I am most. <laughs> I am not the biggest social media person. Um, which I don't know what that says, but I do also tell my clients that if they're not comfortable on social media, they don't have to be on it either. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I would say check out the website. Um, and I do post on Twitter. I will be posting later to say happy birthday to Hannah Reynolds and uh, Eight Nights of Flirting because it is her book birthday today. Um, if you want a lovely Jewish rom-com that has nothing to do with the Holocaust, um, then there you go. Um, so uh, yeah, I would say the website and Twitter are your best bet for me. Well, if you're looking to increase your social media engagement, I just heard about these fantastic uh, uh, seminars you can attend right there. With <laughs> I, I should. I should really have Monica help me out. But <laughs> and Monica, if you're listening, if you want to come on the show and give us some of those sweet, sweet social media tips, we'd love to hear them. <laughs> um, well, maybe, I, maybe soon she will join you. Um, so... We'll see. Fingers crossed, audience. We'll see if we can't uh, if we can't make that happen. <laughs> um, 
Thank you uh, again for making the time, esteemed audience, as always, for uh, more interviews almost as good as this one and for a seven-question interview exactly as good as this one with today's guest of our, which I will uh, link to uh, in, the, in the show notes. Uh, head to middlegradeninja.com. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Thank you.